Minnesota isn't just about hot dish hockey and Target. That's right, friends. It's AJ, your host of the Maybe Swearing Helps podcast, also known as your Minnesota best friend, the one you didn't know you had, and the one you didn't know you needed, but you are glad that you found me. I hope all of you had a great week, that your bosses were gentle to you, that your children respected you when you told them, no, you cannot have chocolate before dinner. And I really hope that your husbands folded the socks that the way you like them to be folded or that you went out and did something that scared your family. It's going to be a great episode here, folks. I am so glad that you joined me. So grab your wine, your comfy chair, and let's get down and dirty with the Maybe Swearing Helps podcast. Late in the afternoon on May 28th, my TikTok feed started to become inundated with this story of the Kapaloos Indian Residential School in Canada. 215 little ones were found in an unmarked mass grave. These deaths and their burial was not even documented in the school's official records. I sat there and I cried. I cried for those children because those children got cheated out of life. They could have been scientists, doctors, lawyers, cultural historians, speakers, mothers, fathers, aunties and uncles. And then my heart went to their families. There are moms and dads who died who left this world not knowing what happened to their child. The last time they saw their child, they were probably screaming and crying because they didn't understand why they had to be taken from the only home they knew, put on buses, and sent to a residential school. Imagine how terrifying that had to be for those children, how terrifying it had to be for those parents, knowing that if they tried to hide their children, there would be consequences. Many of these parents themselves went through the residential school, so they knew about the abuse. They knew about the neglect and how terrible and hopeless of a place they were. But there was nothing they could do. And no matter how hard they yelled or how hard they tried to turn an eye to their child missing, nobody cared because they were just another Indian. When I saw those stories and people's tears, it made me realize we should probably start checking the former Indian residential school sites on our soil because there are probably bodies buried there, bodies that we don't know about, that deserve to be brought home, that deserve to be honored, to celebrate, so that they know that they were loved beyond measure and that what happened to them was absolutely terrible. We cannot go backwards in our history to undo the harm that has already been done, but we can stand up and say no more. Bring every single child home. The story of the 215 children hit a nerve with me. It hit a nerve because I am only 
the second generation removed from the residential school era. You see, 1919 was quite a year. They were in the middle of a pandemic, just like we are now. Reservations were overrun with the influenza virus. People were dying at alarming rates. These residential schools that these children were sent to were so full and so overcrowded, there really wasn't a place for a sick kid to be separated. So the flu spread like wildfire. And the staff of these schools were so overwhelmed with the sick children and the amount of children that were dying, they asked for help and said, we can't take any more kids. The Indian agents had a job to do. Their job was to scoop up any kid they could find on the reservation to send to these schools. The Indian school at Baloo, Leech Lake, Red Lake, the Dakotas, Pipestone, inundated by the flu. They couldn't give these children that they just scooped up back to their families because that would set a precedence for other families to say, hey, well, so-and-so got their kids back. Why can't I get my kids back? That's not fair. In this flu, you see, it was also used as a tool to get even more kids away. Well, you're going to die of the flu anyway, so you might as well give us your kids. At least that way you know they're going to be fed and taken care of. It was used as a tool. My grandfather was just two years old in 1919. Two years old. When he was scooped up by the Indian agents with his brother Richard, who was five years old, and his baby brother Glenwood, 11 months. They were slated to go to a residential school, but because the flu was so rampant, they had to place them somewhere else because giving them back to their mother, like I said, wasn't an option. So the Indian agent looked to the Minnesota state school system, and I'm not talking public school. This is the Minnesota state public school for abandoned and neglected children. It's located in Owatonna, Minnesota. It was one of the largest orphanages this country had ever seen. It was a self-sustaining farm, over 400 acres. They had everything from a laundry to a nursery, a cobbler, a seamstress shop. They raised chickens, pigs, cows. They grew fruit, they grew vegetables. They were self-sustaining. And it was perfect because it was right by the, the railroad, which meant kids could easily flow into this school. And this school was set up to where they felt children would do better if they lived in cottages. So there were cottages throughout this property, and each cottage had a marm that was to take care of the children. Girls and boys were separated. The buildings of this orphanage, the majority of them still stand today in the city of Owatonna, where other states decided to bulldoze their history because they didn't want people to know. Owatonna said, we're going to make this our town hall. We're going to breathe life into this old building. And you can go to Owatonna and you can walk through the old orphanage to this day. You can walk the grounds. You can walk to one of the saddest cemeteries I've ever been to in my life. There is a children's cemetery on the grounds. There are 198 documented deaths at the school. And I say keyword, documented. 
During the early days, children that died got a proper burial with a gravestone. Too many children were dying. That was too expensive. So they were just given a little concrete slab and they put their inmate number on the concrete slab. The oldest child in the cemetery is about 10 years old. The majority of the children in that cemetery are four and under. And when you walk through there, you just think to yourself, there's so much potential here. These children, for whatever reason, whatever happened to them, only they truly know what happened to them and how they died, were cheated out of a life. They were cheated out of love, out of an education, out of growing old to tell stories. If you were lucky, you got adopted. Babies were adopted right away. There was a nursery building that they built specifically to take infants because there was a need. And if you were a couple that wanted a baby, you would just go down to Owatonna, go to the nursery, and they would lay all of the babies they had out. They had out on a rug. And you just, it was like shopping. You just, okay, I want that one over there. Paid them a little money. They'd give you some documents. No background check. No home study like we have today. And off you went with your baby. You could also adopt an older child if you wanted to. For those children that did not get adopted, they most likely ended up being indentured servants. Indentured servitude was another revenue stream for the orphanage because those children had to be paid a wage by their boss families, and that wage went to the orphanage to pay for their upkeep. My grandfather, Clifford, wasn't sent to a residential school. He was put on a train south with his brothers And I went to a museum a few years back and I saw the tiniest pair of handcuffs and I asked, well, what are these for? And she said, well, they had to transport children by train to the residential schools. She goes, or like your grandfather's case, the state school. So the Indian agents would handcuff them so they didn't try to cause a fight or a distraction to overtake the train, get off and run home. They even had handcuffs for babies. Four babies. And I've been to the school as an adult, and the building just, it's just intimidating. It's huge. And I remember standing on the steps, looking up at this very intimidating building, this door, thinking, what did my grandfather think when he was two years old? What was going through his mind? He was taken from his reservation, ripped from his mother, put on a train, and sent here. For some children, it was a haven because they were neglected and abused by their parents. And they needed a place that was safe, where they could be fed, educated. For other children, it was a hell because they were abused. There's stories of the school moms making children sit in a chair for hours on end just because they simply laughed. They're not given a potty break. They're not fed. They just had to sit in the chair as punishment. There's other stories of children being tied to the radiator. And they cranked up the heat and burned their backs or having to put their hand onto the boiler as punishment. So depending on on who you had or what you did in the school, you could have been abused there. And hearing about children that die in the school of 
Oh, they just put their bodies in the root cellar and they waited until night to bury them and they had some of the older children help dig the holes. Those kids knew damn well how their little buddies died. When you walk through that building, it's not a sense of hope. You just feel this sadness, this heaviness. And the first time I visited this place was 2014 and I had no idea that my grandfather walked the halls when he was a toddler. I had no idea. But something there told me you were connected to this place and it took me years to put the pieces together. And I found a census record from 1920 that listed my grandfather Clifford and his two brothers as inmates, the Owatonna State School for Abandoned and Neglected Children. I realized that I had been exactly where he was. And when I go back now, As soon as I pull up, I can feel him with me. And as hard as it is to talk about this piece of American history, we need to talk about it because this cannot be repeated. Children should not be ripped from their families and sent to Indian residential schools or to state schools where they end up being contracted out as an indentured servant at four years old. What is a four-year-old child going to do on a farm? Is he going to feed the chickens, collect the eggs? They're small. They're tiny. I can't imagine what went through his mind when some old man came and said, okay, come with me, and drove him to a farm. He was probably like, what the heck is this? A lot of the families that had these indentured servants didn't treat them the greatest. They were only required to go to school one day a month, like they cheated the system. So most of these kids only saw a classroom one day a month and they were abused. They were neglected. They were made to work like horses. They didn't get a childhood. And these damaged people went out into the world and had their own families. And this generational trauma continued and continued and continued. My grandfather, his story was the exception. The people that contracted him out, the Plotes wanted a child. They didn't want a servant. They wanted a child. So they raised him as their child. He was given toys, clothes, food. He was he could speak English and German fluently in both, taken to church to believe in a God he didn't understand. And one of the saddest things I saw during this journey of finding information out about my grandfather there was a census record from Mount Pleasant. It was like a 1930s census. And the town clerk had written down my grandfather's name and his age and where he lived. And at first it said, indentured servant. That was crossed out right above it in the little box, foster son. Crossed out, indentured servant. And I thought, was Plody ashamed that you were actually an indentured servant and not a foster son? Was he ashamed of this? Like, what, what, what made them, like, make those decisions to, like, cross two things out and then put the original thing back on the form? I would say he didn't care about Clifford, but he did because my grandfather was an alcoholic. He liked to drink. He could drink anybody under the table. His favorite thing about going to work was getting off the job and going to the bar. He knew every back road home to avoid the police. Everybody knew he was a drunk. It's what he was. And he didn't want my grandfather never to have a place to live. So he put the farm 
in trust to the 13 children that my grandfather had. So Clifford would always have a place to live. He'd always have a little bit of a revenue stream. If he needed money, he could turn to the farm and work at the farm and have a home for his children. Maybe he felt guilty. That's why he did it. I don't know. Only they know, and they're dead. I found George Plody's obituary online. And even in the obituary, he didn't claim Clifford as his son. He said, survived by foster son Clifford. You raised this man from the time he was four years old all the way up to adulthood. You watched him have babies get married. You were a part of his life. You were his family, but yet you couldn't call him your son. He was still only your foster son. My grandfather was old enough. Plody told him what his real last name was and what little information he had about his mother. And unlike so many children that have been lost, his mother did not give up looking for him. And she actually was reunited with my grandfather when he was in his 60s. I have another podcast called Finding Clifford. And there's a photo. That's the logo for the podcast. And that's actually a photo that was taken when they were reunited. I wasn't born yet. But I would have loved to have been a bug on the wall. Because just imagine that excitement and that joy that was in his mom's heart knowing. The last time I saw my child, he was two years old. And he's coming back to me as an old man. He's coming back to me. Just imagine how excited she was to like physically put her hands and hug her son again and to hold him close and to let him know, I never gave up looking for you. My middle name is Geneva. It was one of the original assigned names given to my great-grandmother. She changed it to Genevieve after her children were taken and she married a white gentleman. She married a white gentleman because she needed to survive. She had another set of children, those children she got to raise. But she never forgot about her first set, her first three little boys. She never gave up looking for them. And for years, she was lost to us. We didn't know where she was buried. My grandfather couldn't remember. And Irene, we couldn't trust anything she said. So I did a bunch of research and I had some help. And I found out she was buried outside of Hayward, Wisconsin, in a little town called Seeley. And when I realized exactly where that little tiny town was, I thought to myself, you've canoed by this graveyard so many times. You have driven by this graveyard so many times on your way up to Applefest. And you didn't even know that every time you drove by, your great grandma was like, hey, I'm right here. And I don't know if you believe in spirits or the paranormal or whatever you want to call it, but my dad and I, we take care of her grave now. We go up numerous times a year to tend to it. And I got her this whirly gig. It's a peacock. It's got like two spinners. It's just, it was beautiful. And I was like, she deserves something beautiful at her grave. And we can go on a day there will be absolutely no wind no wind whatsoever. You can feel the staleness in the air. As soon as we get out of the car and we walk towards her grave, 
that spinner will start spinning. There's no wind to make it spin. It goes. And when we talk to her, it'll spin faster and faster. When I lay tobacco down, it'll spin in the opposite direction. I know that's her way of communicating to us, of saying, thank you for finding me. Thank you for acknowledging my existence. Thank you for acknowledging what I had to go through so you could be free today. And I go there and I talk to her and I'm sure anybody driving by is probably like, who's that weird girl talking to this this grave? (laughs) And I told her, I'm going to figure out the story of what happened. Going to find out going to find your sons that are still missing. We still do not know what happened to Richard or Glenwood. They deserve to be brought home. Just like all of those children in mass graves, they deserve to be brought home and honored. Richard and Glenwood deserve to have their stories told, and they deserve to be brought home and honored because they are Ojibwe through and through, and I am their great-niece. And because what my great-grandmother went through, what my grandfather and his siblings went through, I am free to practice my culture today. I am free to say I am an Irish, German, Ojibwe Indian, and I am damn proud of it. Nobody can ever take my heritage away from me like they did for them. I'm learning my language, my heritage, and my culture because it was ripped from their hands. I'm closing the circle that was ripped open by our government. So if you think that this story that's happening in Canada is old news, it's not. It's a current story because the last boarding school closed in this country in 1996. 1996. The state school closed in the 70s. Indentured servants were allowed for quite some time in this country. Children should never be put into servitude. They should be given a chance at life instead of a life of service and possibly abuse. This story needs to be told. It is the here and now. It is the lifeblood of Indian country. If you want generational trauma to end, you need to bring every single child home need to bring them home and we will because we will not be silenced now we will not it doesn't matter if you are full blood if you are 50 25 10 percent you are native and if we stand together we cannot and we will not be ignored the time is now to rise up and to bring all of our missing brothers and sisters home, to bring all of our missing and murdered women home. It's time. And we will not rest until we bring them all home. I know that is what my great-grandma Grace and my grandpa Clifford would want, is for us to bring them all home and to tell their stories. 
to tell their stories because history can no longer be silent because it's now in the presence. To the 215 little ones, rest in power. Rest in power, children. Rest in power and enjoy the land of never-ending happiness. You are honored and you are loved. And now it is time to rest. Wondering what I look like? Do you want to see me awkwardly dance at the Mall of America with a cotton candy duck or just awkwardly dance in public without any music at any given time? I have no shame, folks. You can follow me over on TikTok. I am at Ninja in the City, or you can go on over to MaybeSwearingHelps.com. Have a question, have a topic that you would like to hear discussed? You can email MaybeSwearingHelps at gmail.com. I look forward to interacting with you, friends. Have a great week.